this is Captain Lee, and you're listening to the Andertons Podcast. Here we go. Fuel. Take one and see me in the morning. Here we go. <laughs> Oh, I like that last bit. It's like the X Files. Exactly. <laughs> that's the whole idea. When I when I wrote that song, that song's called Fuel. Yeah. I, I was go, I was getting on a train in Paris to go up to Cologne in Germany, 
and I saw a, a, a billboard for Harry Potter World. Right. And I started thinking about those cinematic chords and music and that, and that's where I came up with that. I mean, it's as old as Goldfinger, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but, but it, it, it sparked an idea in me, you know. It's great. So, yeah, so, and I was trying to come up with something that that had the movement of classical gas, you know, yeah. all those different movements. So, so. If you actually, you can actually tap time right through the whole the whole thing. Okay. Even though the time signatures change, if, I, I just keep tapping my foot like this, right? So... foot just keeps doing that <laughs> well ladies and gentlemen ladies and if gentlemen. you hadn't already worked it out uh i'm super honored today yeah. because uh tommy emmanuel has uh come by to guildford to spend Jolly a bit of time with guildford us. yes yes i found uh, it and um it's great because you. you know we we uh we love the acoustic guitar and we don't get enough acoustic guitar players on this channel um right. and they don't come really much better than you well, so thanks. well um I'm I work harder than everybody else. You do. That's it. You, you <laughs> certainly do. Um, and so as with all these kind of interviews, it's a sort of a get to know you, talk about you okay. know, how, how what early life was like and what it was about the guitar that sort of captured your imagination. But, but you're a, an Antipodean sort of Yeah, I'm man, an Aussie boy. An Aussie boy, of, uh, yeah. you know. And um, so if we go back into sort of childhood and stuff okay. and growing up, what, you know, how, what was the music? You, you have quite a musical family, don't you? Absolutely. I, I was one of six children. There are four of us left because um, last year we tragically lost my sister and then my brother a month later. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. So, uh, yeah, it, it was a tough year. It was also the busiest year of my life. So, and I survived it. But anyway, uh, going back to where we started, I was born in a, in a place called Musselbrook, um, which was about five, five hours north uh, uh, west of Sydney. And my father was working in a coal mine in those days. And my mum was crazy about music. My mother could sing and she could play a few chords on the guitar. In fact, um, during the Second World War, when my mother was a teenager, she would go to the train station in the city of Brisbane where all the soldiers, they had to, they had to go through there to get the train north to go to get training, mm -hmm. you know, um, in the Air Force and the Navy. And they all trained up there. So m my mother used to take her guitar to the, to the train station and sing songs to the soldiers as oh, they left. Great. Yeah. So, you know, m my mother loved good songs and good music. And so... Um, ever since I was a baby, I was there was music around me all the time. My mother told me that uh, it was the only time I would settle down is when there was music playing. <laughs> Other than that, I was like, I was uh, 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 screaming my lungs out or something, you know. And then when I was able to walk around, or I was old enough to to walk, she would put the washing in the washing machine and pull the handle, and I would come running down the hallway so I could dance with the washing machine. <laughs> I was hypnotized by Groove. So she knew something was going on with, with, what were they listening with me. To? Hmm? What kind of stuff were they listening to? We were listening to country music, mm -hmm. uh, gospel music, rock and roll music. Mum played Jimmy Rogers, Hank Williams, Hank Snow, Marty Robbins, Jim Reeves, right. all that, that kind yeah, of music. Yeah. Um, and there, of course, there was a lot of wartime songs that, that, mm -hmm. that people always sung, like We'll Meet Again and yeah. stuff like that. Um, and there, there was a lot of English music. There was, you know, the Beatles and Herman's Hermits and all that sort of stuff. Um, but my, my earliest influences was country music, mm. bluegrass music, gospel music, and then R&B a little bit later, yeah. you know. Uh, I... I uh, I guess I, I was fascinated with the guitar right, right from the beginning. So when I was four years old, my mother gave me a guitar for my birthday. And my closest brother, Phil, uh, he's a couple of years older than me. Because I got a guitar, he had to have one. 
and then he insisted on being the lead guitar player <laughs> and made me the rhythm guy. So that's how I started in my musical life was as a rhythm player. Yeah. Right? And I highly recommend to people out there, if you're taking up the guitar, learn a lot of chords and learn a lot of songs in a lot yeah. of keys and learn how to be a good accompanist. Yeah. There, there's more work for a good accompanist than a lousy lead player, okay? <laughs> so, so learn some good songs and some good chords. But uh, if I can explain this to you, Lee, the way I'm wired, I, I'm, I've never had any training. We, we never went to schools. I don't read music. I play everything by, by ear, right? So um, I'm the Indiana Jones of the guitar world, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. When I teach at Berklee College of Music, I'm the only person in the room who can't read music. And I'm the instructor. <laughs> Strange, isn't it? But anyway, um, so the way I heard things, I wasn't aware that there was a bass guitar. So I thought the rhythm player did, did the, the bass part. So there's the bass. The, the rhythms. This is what I heard. So I'm learning all these songs by The Shadows, a great yeah. English band, and I'm working out how to play the rhythm so my brother can go. He's playing that part, yeah. and I'm going. So we, we already sound half like a band. Yeah. And then my brother, my eldest brother joined in on the drums. And so the three of us sounded like four people because I was covering the bass part. But I didn't know that was, I didn't know that was anything special. I was just trying to get the sound that I heard on the yeah. record, right? So uh, fast forward a, a couple of years and we, we'd been playing and we'd been playing at uh, like uh, band contests and playing in churches and playing for free, just getting, getting out there and getting some playing yeah. uh, going, you know. And um, we got booked on this show and we played about 15 minutes and then we came off and then this next band came on and they had, you know, a Fender Strat and a, a Gibson something and then this other electric guitar with four <laughs> strings on it. And I said, what's that guitar with four strings? And a guy said, well, that's the bass. And I said, what's the bass? And then they started and, and I had one of those, oh, now I know what that is. But, but it was, we didn't need a bass player. I was covering it. And, and I was six years old and I knew how to do that. I can't explain that, but that's... When you're looking for a sound and you're very determined like I am, you'll, you'll keep going until you get it. It's as simple as that. Nothing's going to stop you from, from, from getting it if you really want it, you know. What was the story about your dad taking you, all of you out of school and taking you on the road at quite a lot? Yeah, well, um, there, was, uh, there was a guy in Australia named Col Joy who was like the Elvis of Australia. And he was, he was the most popular uh, singing star. Yeah. And he had a band called the Joy Boys. And they, they were, you know, it was like Cliff Richard and the mm -hmm. Shadows and, and, and that. It was Cole Joy and the Joy Boys. And anyway, he came to our town to play in the town hall. And my, my dad went down and begged him to, to come and hear his kids play. Mm -hmm. So, you know, him and his band came round to our house. And we, we, had, we were set up in the lounge room and we played for them. Amazing. Yeah. And, and Cole said to my dad, these kids have talent. The, the public sh should hear them, and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So that was very encouraging. We won a couple of band contests and we, and we won a TV appearance. And uh, I was six years old and I remember it was the weirdest day of my life because my dad, uh, who was a very strict man, was telling me to lie. Right. Yeah, because in those days, the law was that you, you couldn't go on TV unless you were seven years old. Seven was the youngest. <laughs> so I'm there, I, and I looked about three as it was, you know. <laughs> I was a skinny little blonde kid, if you can imagine that. Um, and, and so all the way to the TV station, my dad saying, now you're seven years old. If anybody asks you, you're seven, you know. But I'm six, Dad. No, 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 you're seven. Anyway, thankfully, nobody asked. 
uh, um, but and and we did our spot on this uh, show. It was like six o'clock rock or something like that, you know. And we played. <laughs> My brother played Hank Marvin's part, and Brilliant. I played Bruce Welsh's and and Jet Harris's part at the same time <laughs> while learning two Oriental languages. And uh, anyway, um, so we, we finished the we finished our spot, and there happened to be uh, an American television producer who was out in Australia, just kind of seeing how we did things mm-hmm. and and being a what do you call it uh, a consultant, yes. right? He came straight up to my dad and said, "These kids have talent. The public need to see them and all that, right?" <laughs> So I think that kind of set a fire under my dad and we sold up the house and bought two cars and a tent and away we went. We were the Emmanuel Quartet on the road, 1961. You know? That's insane. Mm. Like Australia's almost version of the Jackson 5 or something. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, kind of thing. But, but we, were, we were an instrumental act, you know. So we, we needed a singer and a girl singer. as We needed a male singer and a, and a girl singer yeah. to kind of give the show a bit of variety. Mm-hmm. And so the guy who was our supervisor for, for school, because we did school on the road, mm-hmm. we did cor- what we call correspondence school, mm-hmm. where uh, it gets sent in, in the mail and you pick it up at the post office, you do your week's work, you take it back to the post office, they send it to Sydney, yeah. he marks it, uh, you know, and then, they, then you get your next week's work. It, yeah. It's all, all coordinated by, by, the, by the government. And, um, so we did our schooling and the guy who was our supervisor uh, sang a bit like Johnny Cash. So he, he, was, uh, <laughs> he was part of the show. And then there was a, there was a, a, a young lady um, who could sing uh, pretty well and she sang gospel tunes and, and um, Hawaiian songs and stuff like that. And she helped my mum out with, with the little kids. And um, so we were a, a travelling unit, you know. And uh, we we pretty quickly went broke. Right. And, <laughs> and this if, is the bad part of the story. Well, no, it's the learning part. Yeah. You know, and it was early '60s in Australia. The roads were pretty bad. The cars were primitive. You know, they were always breaking down and boiling and getting tire blowouts and wearing out bearings and all that stuff. You know, we. But we were very happy on the road. My mother cooked on an open fire all the time. We, we washed our clothes in the river, you know, stuff like that, you know, that, uh, that you just don't do anymore, you know. That's a we wonderful... slept under the stars all the time. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's, I mean, I'm sure it was tough, but I mean, it sounds like just such a sort of romantic vision of kind of, you know, being on the road and yeah. playing guitar with your family as well. Well, exactly. Like... A, normal, a normal day for us when, when I was like seven years old, would be we would wait till lunchtime and then we would go down to the local music store or mm-hmm. electrical goods store, set up our, our amps and, and drums and stuff and play really loud in there <laughs> and draw a crowd. And then my, my father would say, and we're playing in the town hall tonight. Don't miss it. Get a ticket and blah, blah, yeah. blah. And he'd be trying to sell a refrigerator to an Eskimo, you know. <laughs> and... Um, and then, and then at three thirty, when kids are coming out of school, we 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 would play in the hall, and kids would come and poke their head in and have it, and go home and tell their parents about it, and that's how we got a crowd. That's, that, that's what it was like. We uh, um, because I was so young, um, uh, I would only play the first half of the show. So in the first half of the show, we would open with like four instrumentals. My brother playing lead, me playing rhythm, my eldest brother playing drums and my sister playing fills and stuff underneath. And then she would play some songs on the lap steel. And then there'd be a couple of uh, vocal tunes. Then my father would would come out and tell a few stories. And then he'd start bragging about me. And uh, and then, then it was my turn and I would play, you know, guitar boogie or something like that. Uh, as the lead player and then I would play my sister's lap steel uh, and then I would play uh, Wipeout on the drums, you know, and uh, (laughs) all that stuff. And then uh, that would be the first half of the show and ten minutes later I'd be out the back on the back seat of my, yeah, where I lived was the back seat of my dad's car. That was my, my room. <laughs> this is, I think it's one of my, I think it's just such a wonderful story. But so, so how long did the family do that for then? Until dad died in 1966. Okay. Yeah, he was, he was only 49. Wow. But he had a heart disease, which I 
I've inherited, but but I live in an age where we have good good medicine. That's why I'm still. So you were only ten or eleven at this point, then. I was. Yeah, I, I was. It was just before my eleventh birthday. Oh man, that's yeah. tough. Yeah, and um, well, you know, in hindsight, it, it, it's never easy losing your father, but. In hindsight, it would have been a lot harder for me if I was 18 or 20, you know. Mm-hmm. And because uh, I remember that period in my life where I was starting to make a name for myself in the big city. I was, I'd moved to Sydney and I was getting a lot of work and I was really kind of a- achieving a lot. And the, always in the back of my mind is, I wonder what dad would think if he saw me now, mm-hmm. you know. So, um, and I still think about that sometimes, but, but I'm dad now uh, yeah. uh, and I'm, uh, and I love being dad. You know? Were you immensely proud? I would imagine your dad would have been, cause it's obviously what he wanted for, for, for you and, and you exactly. know, to, 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 and, you know, make some sort of a living out of playing music. Right. And you've, you've done well, if you, exactly that. If you could, if, if I could go back and talk to that young person that I used to be and tell him. The, you, you're not going to believe what's going to happen to you. You you would just would yeah. would never believe it. In my lifetime, I've got to know just about all my my heroes: Les Paul, Chet Atkins, Dwayne Eddy, you know James Burton, Albert Lee. You name it. I I've met them all. The people who showed us the way, and the, the, that's a lucky life, you know. For sure. And I got to record with uh, my hero Chet Atkins. Um, and and I got to, I'm living my my childhood dream, driving all those long hours in the outback of Australia, literally dreaming about playing the the theatres that I play. You know, I get to play Royal Festival Hall in London. You know, and I go out and play with just my guitar and me. That's a dream come true. It didn't come easy, but but it, I got there. You know, because I had a vision. Yeah, I think. A lot of people, especially those who don't have enough confidence in themselves, they they lack that vision of you know. Because I always say, where where do you see yourself? Mm. Well, I don't know. Well, there's the problem. And I saw myself there. I just didn't know how I was going to get there. Mm. You know. And so when I was young, I I knew I wanted to be there. I was a concert player. And I'm going to write my own songs and all that. I just didn't have a clue how I was going to do that. And it just slowly unfolded. And it's still unfolding. So you, if we go back to your teenage years, obviously, you know, huge shock to lose your dad uh, so young. Mm-hmm. Um, but presumably the sort of family unit sticks together. And mm-hmm. w- at what point did you sort of feel like, you know, I need to fly the nest now and go and do my thing? And, and Well... The family band kind of disintegrated not long after Dad died mm. because my my sister um, went off and got married and had children, and so we d- we got hauled off the road by the government uh, body called the Child Welfare Department. Oh, okay. We were forced off the road and to into Back normal into schools because yeah. they didn't believe we were getting a, a proper education. Of course, they were wrong, but mm. but <laughs> we had to abide by that law. So we we settled in a town called Parks in in New South Wales, and um, we went to school there. And Phil and I had a band, uh, a local band called the Trailblazers, and we used to play weddings, parties, you name it, uh, dances and all that. And we played in sort of uh, like. A, uh, RSL clubs, they were like um, return soldiers clubs yeah. where, they, you know, yeah, they've got a hall or they, they, they've got a room with a stage and they're, over here is the poker machines and in there is the restaurant and yeah. there they're the bar and, yeah. you know, people get up and dance and all that. We played those kind of places to make, make a living and support our mother and, yeah. you know, keep the fa- a roof over the family because after Dad died, we, you know, we, were, we were always the breadwinners, you yeah. know. And we, we still are. Yeah. And, um, you know, and whenever I'm, whenever I'm teaching a, a class, like a master class, I always tell the uh, students, I'm an example to you of someone who makes a living playing the guitar. Mm. I don't do anything else, right? My family depend on me. I've got mortgage like everybody else, car payment like everybody else. Everybody, all my kids have got to be educated and go through school and college and all that. So I better have it together. 
you know. Mm-hmm. So I try to take that kind of um, a, a practical approach, mm-hmm. you know. But I mean, I could sit here all, and talk all day about technique and the beauty of music and, and, and how hard it is to write a song. I could talk about that all day too, you know. But if you want to be successful, it's both, isn't it? It's you everything. You can't be... Yeah, and it's the way other. beyond the guitar. Mm. It's, mm. it's a higher calling than just playing the guitar. Mm. There are a million great guitar players out there, guys who can play rings around me, but I can write a song and I can tell you a story and change your day. Yeah. And that's my job. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, so you, you've obviously, I guess even from a really young age, life was always going to be about making a living out of playing guitar. <coughs> yeah. But when, so when the when you finally you know went out of your own, Phil presumably went off and did his. Did he carry on being a musician? Or yeah, he... Phil, Phil and I worked as a duo in the eighties, mm-hmm. and then uh, occasionally in the, in the nineties, and then um, uh, I had a lot of success with my own albums mm-hmm. in my home country of Australia, and Phil kind of followed suit and started releasing his own albums and. The, and every now and again, we'd get a chance to, to get back together. Is, is he stylistically similar to you? Is it no, he's very, 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 very different. Right. Yeah, he was, he was more uh, your kind of heavy rock player. Okay. Um, and uh, although when, when, when him and I played stuff that we'd worked out together, it was like the two of us became one, you know. And uh, when he passed away last year, I, I kind of made this statement that, I lost my irreplaceable. He, he's my irreplaceable partner, my, yeah. my other self. Yeah. And and as much as I love playing with other players, and I, I have some great people that I love working with, but there's something special about playing with your sibling. Yeah. That especially that you know when we get going on stage, we 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 could read each other's mind. I knew exactly what he wanted next. And yeah. and he'd always he'd always let me know somehow you know and I'd always be re- watching him and yeah. sometimes I'd be reeling him in and sometimes I'd be letting him go and following him <laughs> you know so um, yeah but uh, I m- my main thing was I fell in love with songwriting when I was young and I tried I think I wrote probably. 20 years of forgettable music, you know. <laughs> That's why I don't play it, because I forgot it. But things started to stick once, once, I, uh, once I did enough listening and learning. You know, this is the thing that young people write to me. They see me on YouTube or, or, or they go to my shows, and 90% of the show is my original songs. And that, so they try to write songs like that, and then they get frustrated, and they write to me and they say, I'm trying to write songs like you, but they're all crap. You know, I said, well, how old are you? I'm 16. Well, I don't wonder that they're crap. Yeah. You haven't done anything yet. You've got to listen. Our, our job as a musician is to listen and take all that information in. You can't put anything out without taking in first, mm-hmm. you know. And you, you've got to be really patient with, with, with songwriting. Sometimes... You know, you just wait for for something to happen to cause you to write. Yeah. You know, like the the song I played earlier, I wrote that because I saw that Harry Potter thing and I started thinking about the these uh, cinematic chords. But then I had time. I had four hour train trip and I wrote that song and practiced it up and played it that night in Germany. Right, and there's a lot in that song, so I had to practice it and practice it and practice it. But I used all my skills to to write that song to see where the music wanted to go and 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 how I could make it interesting and all that sort of stuff. But there are other songs I've written, um, like for instance, uh, there's a song called Lewis and Clark, mm-hmm. and the Lewis and Clark were uh, really only Americans know much about them. They uh, they were the explorers and sent by um, President Thomas Jefferson um, to. Uh, explore the American West and find what was out there so they could inhabit it, basically. Mm -hmm. And what they found were the native people were already there, you know. And uh, so when I read the journals of Lewis and Clark, it put me in that place of inspiration. I had a great idea to to write about, you know, I had a story and an emotion and the whole thing was like, and I saw the movie in my head. Yeah. So I thought, this has got to be simple, 
It's got to speak of the native people. It's got to speak of the American West, the prairies, the rivers, the mountains, the wide open spaces and the great unknown. So how do I do that? Okay, so I started with, with some moving chords. It's already sounding like it's going somewhere, right? Said the verse. So it's setting up the story. No, you can visualize it totally, you know, completely. Yeah. And so I've got this going. I'm really, I'm happy. I'm, I'm chilling up, yeah. playing it, you know. And I, each time I get to the chorus, where, where now this is the big moment. This is the, the payoff, the yeah. chorus. Each time I got to there, nothing was coming. <laughs> and every, everything I tried to manufacture, so to speak, and throw at it was not working. And see... The, there's two songwriters inside me. There's one up here who's very clever and, and who has a million ideas and will keep throwing them at me. Yeah. But there's one down here that must be satisfied. Yeah. This is the one that wins, yeah. right? Because uh, I, don't, I don't do stuff to impress musicians. I have a much higher calling than that. And, and so I need to be satisfied in my soul when I play music and write it, right? Yeah. So eventually I pushed it and pushed it and pushed it and then I said, that's it. This part's right and I know it, but I've got to get the right chorus. Otherwise, it, it's, it, you know, it, yeah. it's not worth it. So I put the guitar down and went to bed. I got up really early, quarter to six or something. Sun was coming up and I was, I was on this lake. I was in a little motel right on the lake. And I walked out in the veranda and I got a different view. I, I got a view from the native people's perspective. And, they, and the, uh, when, I, when I thought of that, this phrase came to me, if you bring your love with you, if you bring your love with you, We'll welcome you. If, if you're coming to take mm. our land, then you're in for a fight. You mm. know what I mean? So if you bring your love with you, had a melody with it. And I grabbed my guitar. If you, there it is. Yeah. If you bring your love with you. So that was all work, working for me. Then I played the uh, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, double chorus and out. And I thought, it's kindergarten. It's so simple. And then I had to battle my, this guy up here going, it's too simple, it's too <laughs> simple. And this guy in here saying, just yeah. be quiet. It's there, you know. And, and um, it's, it became one of my most popular songs yet one of the simplest things I've, I've ever written, you know? It, but it just has, it has everything that my instincts tell me mm. it needs. And so I, I don't try to be clever and, and push it. I just l let it be, as Paul McCartney mm. would say, just let it be, you know? So... It, to get that thing of constant motion, yeah. we have the constant movement of chords, right? And th then you've got that native sound. 
and I just do that by flicking my thumb upwards yeah. like that. The other thing I wanted to point out is I didn't realise this is a technical thing, but but not everybody can do that. Oh, okay. With their knuckle, you see, <laughs> and if you can't do. Oh wow! You're playing the. Wow. So there are some people who are trying to find trying to move a position family, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to play that. And a couple of people said, we really love Lewis and Clark, but we can't play it because we can't do that. <laughs> I'm, I'm intrigued with, um, you know, you, you are predominantly known as an instrumentalist. Yeah. And I'm intrigued about how, what was the journey between, was there some frustration at the beginning that you're sort of, you know, that you that you weren't writing songs that you were singing over or were you just naturally going, I never wanted to do that? No, I, I, I had plenty of negativity around me to charge me on. Kind right. of thing, you know what I mean? I had record companies saying, we don't know how to market you and, and, and we've heard you sing, why don't you blah, 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 mm. why don't you be a singer-songwriter like mm. everybody else? Mm. Then, then you can be a star. You know, and it's like, now I've, I've got to do what I believe I'm supposed to do deep yeah. inside. This is, this is my voice. Yeah. I get away with singing because I can, but I'm not really a singer. But I mostly listen to singers, mm. you know. I don't sit, people think that, that a guitar player spends all his time studying other guitar players. Nothing could be further from the truth. I don't care about other guitar players <laughs> so much, you know. I'm learning songs Melody, from singers, yeah. you know. I want to learn how to write a song. So I listen to people who write great songs. Stevie Wonder, Billy Joel, Elton John, Eric Clapton, um, you name it. I've listened to everybody mm. from from Mozart to Beethoven to Metallica to <laughs> Bonnie Raitt. I listen to all kinds of music and I think you've got to have an open attitude about yep. that and take it all in. Let it all come yep. into you, you know. A normal day for me when, I, when I'm home is I'll get up and I'll put on Stevie Ray Vaughan or something. And then I'll switch to Aretha Franklin. Then I'll, I'll switch to Michael Jackson, yeah. you know, and, and, and just keep taking in good song after good song after mm. good song, you yeah. know. I couldn't have written a tune like Lewis and Clark if I hadn't really studied James Taylor mm. and, and Gordon Lightfoot, you know, people whose music moves the world. Mm. That's what I want to do. I'm not interested in him winning a reader's poll or, or being, uh, you know, uh, touted as the greatest anything. I'm interested in, in helping mm. changing the world with whatever I have, yeah. you know? And I, think it, I think it was that I was more coming from an angle. I can completely understand that, uh, you know, being an instrumentalist is a much more niche market than being totally. a singer-songwriter. So I can understand yeah. commercially why record companies would be going, come totally, on, yeah. sing, yeah. sing something. But what you've got to do is, is you've got to build an audience yourself. Yeah. No one's going to do it for you, you know? You've got to get out there and do it. You know, people, people think, oh, Tommy Emanuel plays all these places because he's got a great agent and he's got a great management and blah, blah, blah. Do you know how hard it was to get those people? Yeah. Do you know how hard I had to work just to get the attention of an agent? You know, he, he had to see, because, uh, you know, agents and management are looking at figures of mm. who's drawing a crowd every day. You know, mm. so you start to get in. Oh, he's 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 consistently drawing six hundred people. He's consistently drawing a thousand people. Who is this guy? Mm. You know what I mean? I had to do that by hand. Mm. I had to keep coming back. And this is the difference between me and most of the other people. They're not willing to work that hard, and they're mm. not willing to keep coming back because it takes too much sacrifice. And that that's the truth. Mm. It's a lot of sacrifice. And I've, boy, I have paid a high price for it with being away from my family. Mm. I understand that. But I feel that when I play, something really wonderful happens to people. I don't know what it is. It's not me, but it's something <laughs> that happens when I play. And so I feel it's my job and my destiny and my calling yeah. to get out and play and give everything I can. Uh, and and I, I try to do that. And I always tell people, if you don't give those people 110%, then get out of the way and let me out there. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's my attitude. So you, you, you've been successfully touring as a solo artist now for, it's going to be more than 30 years, isn't it? 30 to 40 years. Oh, yeah, as a solo. 40 years at least. Yeah. So 
I mean, over that time, and what have you, have you felt stylistically? How have you kind of changed? And um, well, I hope I've grown. Yeah, and grown I think as a I, I've I've got comfortable with just being myself out mm. there, you know. And I I uh, I can still remember the fear of slipping one of my original songs into a set <laughs> where people come to see me play Beatles stuff and classical yeah. gas and all that which I still love to play. I only play music that I think is good, you know, that I think people are going to love and have yeah. a great time. And, uh, and I always play too much, you know. I, right. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I walk the line of, you know, when I play guitar boogie, I play a ridiculous amount of music and I, I go off and do whatever I want. It's totally self-indulgent, but all that stuff is what the crowd love to see. You know, if I was going to see a guitar player, say, you know, I would expect him to give me his bone marrow, you know, give me everything. <laughs> and, and, and if you blow my mind, I'll be the first to buy a ticket and come back and see you. You know, I remember the, the first time I saw George Benson, he, he blew my mind, but he totally satisfied me in the first song. Yeah. He played so much in the first tune you know, that you just, your, your jaw was going to drop on the ground. And so I, I try to do a bit of everything. I try to be, surprise my audience because surprise equals entertainment, right? So I say stuff that they don't expect, like, you know, the next song I have played in front of the Prince of Wales, the Duke of Edinburgh and many other pubs, you know, <laughs> stuff like that, where, and where you take the mickey out of yourself, you know. And, uh, and um, you know, and I try to play my original songs and tell stories and, um, and entertain people with well, whatever I have, you know. That's why I play with a brush and bang my head on the microphone because <laughs> no one else does that and it's, it's something different to do, you know. It's all in the name of entertainment. Oh, it's cool. You, now, you, you've collaborated with some wonderful artists in, in your career. Has there been... You know, are there one or two highlight stories or maybe, you know, stories well, I mean, that people might not have heard? Obviously, recording with Chet Atkins in the early days was, you know, I still look at that and go, did that really happen? It was <laughs> amazing, you know. But uh, my, my previous album, Accomplice One, I had Mark Knopfler, uh, Ricky Skaggs, Rodney Crowell, um, Susie Boggess, Amanda Shires, Jerry Douglas, Frank Vignola, there's so many good players, all different genres, you know. And it was recorded, some, some of the stuff we, we did when I was down in Cuba, uh, some we, we did in Nashville, some we did here in, in England. Clive Carroll and I did a, a duet and, uh, and I went to Mark Knopfler's studio so Mark and I could do a song together. And it was just a joy to make. Uh, uh, it was serendipity, you know, everything came together. Yeah. And uh, I've just been recording a new album, which is 26 original songs, a double album. Wow. Uh, uh, the album's going to be called Tommy Songs, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, I was very inspired by um, uh, Readology and stuff like that, that. When Jerry Reed had a song called Readology, and I thought, his name is in that word, and, and Readology describes the uniqueness of what he's doing. That doesn't sound like anybody. That's readology. So I thought, well, my songs are unique to me. So I had to find a word mm. that would, would describe that. So Tommy songs as one word kind of thing. So all, all original songs. That's amazing. Mm. Um, should we talk a little bit about gear? I mean... We can. This is my main touring guitar. Yeah. I, I usually carry three on the road. Right. Right. Um, and... Uh, this one, all three of them are made in guitars, made in Australia, and they're all they're all individual. You know, they were made for me, but they're also experimental guitars. And uh, this one has a smaller sound hole, yeah, and it's thinner that way. So, have you always been more of a, you know, like a triple O kind of body style, or would you, you know, is that I started out with the... like a dreadnought with yeah. a cutaway, mm -hmm. which was a maiden as well. I actually, I started on Takamini. Mm -hmm. we, 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 you oh, know, you're I talking about the Takamini adverts actually with you in them. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, they were the only guitar that had a decent pickup, Yeah, you know, and those pickups still stand up today. You know, yeah. Takamini made great pickups. Yeah. And um, so in those days, in the late 70s, um, 
Takamini came to me and 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 showed me the very latest thing where the with the yep. things here and the you put the twelve volt battery in yep. here and all that. They haven't changed much in forty <laughs> years, have they? <laughs> but you see, that's because that's because it worked. Because it worked, yeah. So I I had a deal with Bose as well. So I used to have the Takamini and I'd have a EV entertainer desk, mm-hmm. one of those Tapco with the graphic in it. And I would do my own mix and everything from on stage, and I played through a Bose PA. Yeah. So that enhanced the acousticness of the pickup anyway, mm-hmm. playing through Bose. Right? So I was playing rock gigs in pubs around Sydney and Melbourne uh, in the late 70s, solo acoustic on Saturday night to 500 bikers, you know, <laughs> just pounding the hell out of this guitar playing everything as loud as hard as fast as i could that was my kind of training ground for what i'm doing now i'm a concert player now back then i was i was in the trench i was in <laughs> i was at war with the audience trying to get better you know and uh so <coughs> the takamini was by far the best mm. uh, plug in and play type guitar and then Maiton came to me, and I've always liked Maiton guitars. Mm-hmm. My first good guitar, which is in the museum um, in, at the Maiton factory, um, I got in 1960. That guitar is still plays beautiful. I didn't realize Maiton went back that far. They go back to 1946. Wow. Yeah. So it's a great Australian company, mm. and they're, you know, they're one of the big bigger brands now that that don't build guitars in Korea and China. For they sure. still make guitars in Australia and then that's how it is um, but um, yeah so I had the Takamini and it was kind of cutaway uh, dreadnought and I played that for a long time it, it recorded pretty well acoustically a, as well but then when Maiton eventually came up with the AP5 uh, pickup mm-hmm. and mic system that revolutionized everything I plugged it in and I just said to them this is what I've been waiting for all my life you know, yep. plug this in, and then of course I got I got hooked up with AER amps uh, from from Germany, and um, that there was the perfect coupling mm-hmm. of of a guitar and an amp together, and all of a sudden we were off and running, you know, yeah. and be able to plug that amp into any PA and get a sound like that. I can turn up, plug in like I do. Last week I did the Opry in in wow. the, the Grand Ole Opry in in Nashville. And we did two shows in one night, and uh, and I just turned up with my amp. They they plugged the XLR in the back, turned it on. Okay, good, thanks. That was my sound check. Sounds great. You know, got it in the monitors, got it in the house, set everything flat, sounded great. Well, that's what you want, isn't that's it? That's what you want. Yeah, yeah. Well, what's what's was it about the slightly more compact guitar size over a dreadnought that appealed to you? Uh, I I just liked it, and the and feel I still, of it or the sound. Or yeah, both. 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 Yeah. I mean, I, I do have some beautiful dreadnoughts. I, I, have a, uh, I have a Martin D28, and I have a Koa Martin, a, a Hawaiian Koa. Which, which we saw, it's beautiful yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, I don't use them on stage. I only have them at home. Mm-hmm. Or I, you know, I've got a Gibson J45 that I, that I love. I, I've got every colour of the palette of an acoustic guitar that you can imagine. Yeah. I've got a beautiful Larravee. Um, I, I have a pre-war, which is a handmade guitar which is a replica of a oh i've seen i think i saw yeah. them at last year's nashville nam i think yeah that, that's right yeah. the guys from pre-war very were cool. there very cool i, I have a, a replica of a 30s triple o 28 martin yeah that is brazilian rosewood the wood's been baked and stressed yeah. and that guitar sounds unbelievable we, we have an english builder that's a similar vibe Rackin. yeah i He's, played one of his guitars last yeah. time i was in your store Lucky here there. it's a similar kind of vibe trying to trying to recreate all those pre-war kind of gibsons yeah. and, and it's, it's, cool. it's wonderful you yeah. know and it's great to hear that sound yeah you know um the funny thing about martins and gibsons and those those tried and true brands that have been around a long time Every now and again, you'll you'll pick one up, and it'll be just better than all the rest of them. Yeah, and and that's just how it is. Yeah. I I went to the factory in Montana to the Gibson factory, and I bought two J forty fives. I played about eight of them, yeah. and I t- I brought two, one for a friend of mine in Germany, and one for me, because I wanted that sound, and it's a very close sound to some of Merle Travis's r- records right. and Hank Williams. Right, I had that guitar for twelve years. 
and I walked into the guitar center in, in Franklin, in, outside of Nashville, and there was a brand new J45 on the wall with a, with a, a bit more ornate mm-hmm. uh, headstock with the, with the um, Grover head. It's just a J45 Deluxe, I think, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Just like the Rosewood back inside. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Uh, no, it wasn't Rosewood. It's um, Mahogany. Oh, is it? The J45? Maybe it's a diff- Maybe it was just like a custom J45. Anyway, okay. No, anyway, uh, Tobacco Sunburst. Yeah. You know, the, the bridge around the other way and all that. And I took it off the wall. It's brand new out of the box. Yep. It sounded like it was from the 40s. <laughs> I mean, and I just had, I said, this is my guitar. And I, and I traded my, my one that I bought at the factory, traded it in and bought that one because that one was so much better. And it's just, you just get lucky. Every now and yeah. again, you'll find a guitar and you'll go, it's my guitar, you know. Oh, so mating guitars, uh, this is like my voice. It's just such a reliable instrument. Mm. I can plug in and get a sound anywhere. Stick a mic on it and it sounds great. Yeah. So you know, I have I have this one, uh, which is always in normal tuning, and um, and then I have another one with a cutaway, which is slightly wider, and I use that for drop D and drop G uh, songs, and then the third one is a wider body again, the same size as this, but like that, and I have um, thirteen to fifty six on it, and I tune it down a whole step. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a whole different yeah. Like a fatter yeah. kind of thing, and I use more more mid range in it, and all that, and I, I play uh, like ballads and mm-hmm. songs where I use a lot of harmonics and stuff. You know, like it, let me give your viewers a little tip here. When when I when I'm playing a show and I want to go into something like somewhere over the rainbow or mm-hmm. whatever like that, first thing I do so I don't get hear that. Mm-hmm. If you when you're playing harmonics, you might get that. So I turn the mic off. Right. right. So that, that sound now doesn't come out the PA. And then I bring the mid-range up. So when I, and, and I'm using reverb. So when I go to play. In order to get those harmonics. I poke the mid-range out like that, but I play gently. So. So there's no, there's no extraneous noises, and when I hit the harmonic, they just jump out because of the mid-range, right? But it's not a sound that you would use because it's kind of harsh, yeah. right? But if you're playing gently, it's sweet. I, I must know? say, you're watching you do that and then thinking back to the old sort of Chet Atkins, the showmanship bit of it. I don't right. mean... And it's showmanship in a very sort of old-fashioned way, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, yeah. And it's so lovely it's, to it's see. It's Marx Brothers, you know? Yeah. It, Watching Chico go yeah. with his finger. Yeah. You know, people love that stuff. It's really cool. And, and it, it, it's fun, and it's a way of saying, I like I, I, I like a laugh too, Yeah. you know? I, I'm very serious about this, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not taking myself 
you know, like uh, I'm a, uh, I'm a uh, what do you call it, um, uh, self-contained, uh, self-absorbed artist. I, I'm still, I'm using these things to entertain you. Yeah. See, when I, when I went bing and like that, yeah. you laughed. Yeah, that, and, and that's exactly. That multiply was, that by a thousand people. Yeah, and it's, it's, it was exact that moment where I thought that is the sort of thing that the guitarists of that Chet Atkins kind of era used to, to do. It was, yeah. anyway, it was, but there was yeah. another cool trick that you had now we plugged into the, the compact 60 which mm -hmm. i think everyone in anderson's you know and yourself it's it's always been our favorite acoustic yeah, guitar yes. but you absolutely rightly said i think most people when they have an acoustic guitar they get it on stage and they either point it at the audience or they point it at themselves, at themselves they put it up on a stand up on a stand it's everything's wrong about that so tell us again if we can get a look at the camera on whether you know yeah. you, you've you're wearing a you know a, a, a not massive room, but you know, like a no. sort of studio live roomy kind of vibe. Um, okay, and so, well, the first thing you got to do is leave the amp on the floor. That's where all the bass comes from. That's where the big sound mm -hmm. comes from, right? Set everything flat. Don't, don't use the bright switch. Mm -hmm. Just set everything flat and start there. Get the amp to sound good on the floor. Get the bass right and all that sort of stuff. Um, and don't point the amp at the audience, you, you, the, because by the time that little speaker has thrown sound forward, it's like a point. It starts mm -hmm. to thin out after about six feet, mm -hmm. you know. A Fender Twin is the same. It'll give you a haircut at 10 <laughs> paces. It's so pointy, you know. So you, you take the line out of the back of it and put that straight into the PA. Now, walk forward, get the sound man to turn you up and have a listen see what it's like, you know, because m most guitar players make the mistake of getting their sound how they like it on stage and they're not even aware of what, mm. what's going on, what the public hear. Yeah. And that's the most important thing. For, for me, I always get the sound I like in the room, in the hall, in the PA and everything. Get that first, then think about how yeah. you want it on stage, you know. But that this idea of spinning it round was to yeah. fill out the it room reflections. It bounces the sound around, really and the sound cool. gets bigger. Yeah, you know? and it's, you know when I'm when I'm teaching, say if if we were in a room three times as big as this, and we had sixty people sitting in chairs, they're going to absorb all the sound. And I, so what I do is I'll find a surface and bounce the sound around the room to them. It makes you know? sense. It makes yeah. total sense. Do it you does. do the same with an electric guitar amplifier? Or is yeah, it a very acoustic thing? Turn it round. Same thing. Yeah, d don't point the speakers at the audience. Well, there we go. That's where yeah. we're all doing it wrong, everybody. <laughs> no, it's the way to go. Get, get a microphone yeah. in this. Here's the speaker cone. Get the microphone down here yeah. and point it. But don't point it in the middle. Mm. That's, around, that's only treble in there. Yeah. Point it at the outside like that. And if you've got a an amp that has an open back or whatever, stick a mic in the back as well. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's a great sound. I used to use the, the twin, the one with the red knobs. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> and I had, um, I had a baffle at the front, right? Right. And so um, the amp would be facing that way towards the audience, but it's baffled off. And I got, a sp I got a mic there, and then I got a mic at the back. And I would favor the back mic to, for the monitors coming at me. So it almost sounded like a Marshall Quad amazing yeah that's and you nice. just you you bring the master back pull out the pull uh, the channel switch so it's just going into driving it and yeah. that, that's where you run it then you just add your extra distortion from your pedal i do i do think that the the di on the aer just makes i think piazzo pickups on acoustic guitars can be quite notoriously difficult to yeah. get a nice but the di from this is just superb it's yeah. almost you can plug anything into yeah. that it just this, great this piazzo pickup is you know when you just heard it yeah uh, i think that sounds great know, uh, i really do i'll turn the mic off there's that's just very so then you bring here's the microphone on its own Then it's almost the other way around to how I, exp you know, on a, other systems I've heard that the mic is what brings in the fatness mm. and the piazzo is the brighter, more jingly. Yeah, sort well, of sound. most people, most people don't cover the hole. 
for yes. a start. But yeah. that's a big mistake. Yeah. If the idea is to get the most out of the mic and the most out of the pickup. Yeah. So cover the hole and crank it up. Mm. You know, I use everything on ten. That's how I get the sound. You put that in the PA, and when you're in the audience, it feels like your head is inside my guitar. <laughs> so that's that's a good thing to to remember. You know. Wow. And, and uh, uh, when I'm looking at the audience, I'm trying to make a connection with them. Doesn't matter how far away they are, I look up at them and I wave and I I play to them. I play to the people over here and the people up here, you know. And so we all feel like one. And, and uh, yeah, that's a great a great desire of mine to to reach people, you know. Right. And I. I testament i think to how you've managed to have uh, such a long-standing successful career because it is all about giving <coughs> the, the paying customer some sort of experience that they'll want to do again and again exactly you know? yeah um, what as a as a player and an artist what you want to hear at the end of the night is not how good you played or blah 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 what you want to hear is when are you coming back? <laughs> That's what you want to yes. hear. Yes, can I buy a CD and when and, are you coming back? Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Be, because you know you want to come back. For sure. And, and, uh, and, and it's a good job. It, it's good to have work to look forward to. Yeah. You know? And, um, and what does the... Because uh, you, you mentioned before we started rolling that you still think you're doing 300-odd dates a year. Yeah, I'm so... I'm, well, I tried slowing down and I'm no, no good at it, you know? <laughs> I'm a road dog. I, I need to play and I need to feel like I'm improving. If I, if I feel like I'm treading water, it's, it just doesn't work for me. That's know? something, I, you know, I think a lot of great guitarists, that's, there's a similar trait there. That it's not a born natural talent. It's, a, it's an innate desire to be better. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, I think that's... That comes across, I think, a lot. So, yeah. so tell us, you know, new out. When's this Tommy Songs album? Uh, it comes out. It'll be out in the new year. Excellent. At the moment, I have an album out called Heart Songs, which is duets with my friend John Knowles. Mm-hmm. And um, I just recorded with Barry Gibb uh, wow. a couple of days ago in in, <laughs> in Nashville. He, and Barry's doing a beautiful album of all all his songs. And I got to play on uh, on How Deep Is Your Love, like a, like. A, a, And he came in. Didn't sound like that though, did he? <laughs> uh, he's Barry. I don't know how old Barry is, but he still sounds twenty-one when he sings. He's it's such amazing. a unique voice, that isn't guy. it? It's beautiful. It's like... um, and uh, I've been writing some new songs, and um, uh, uh, I have the new album coming out, and I'll be I'll be touring that next year. But I'll be here in Britain for um, the transatlantic sessions with, cool. with Jerry Douglas and and the whole crew of Celtic uh, guys. Well, so, I mean, we've got audience from all over the world. So best place, I guess, to just go and find out about right. it is TommyEmmanuel.com. Yeah, and just push on tours and all the dates come up. It's, well, it can't be. It must be. You're doing 300 dates a year. <laughs> I'm sure wherever you live in the world, you should be able to get to see it. Yeah. It has been such a pleasure having you in. Oh, thanks. Um, the, the, the music is wonderful to listen to, but the story is, is uh, just as inspiring. Well, I could be here all day. So, Well, and you said, look, <laughs> honestly, we, we would have you back any time. There you go. See, then um, that's when I was waiting. Exactly. Uh, so uh, shall I finish with an, another new song? I think you should. I think you should, everybody. I know we all can't right. hear you, but please clap your hands and we'll yes. have some sort of global mass uh, the, YouTube The audience leapt to its foot. <laughs> yeah, hey. The last show I played, the audience went mild. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, what was the other one? Uh, yeah, the last place I played, three people walked in on me. So. <laughs> All right. This is a, an, another new song from this uh, new album. This is called A Song for a Rainy Morning. Here we go.
Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> That's beautiful, man. Beautiful. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our latest podcast. If you enjoyed it, hit that subscribe button. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>